Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Valkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Patrick Lode, who is the author of a brand new book on Ramana Maharishi. It's called Surrendering to the Self, Ramana Maharishi's Message for the Present. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Raj, for joining this invitation. <clears throat> oh, it's, uh, it's our pleasure. How did you become interested in this figure? Well, uh, it took us back um, many years ago, in fact. I think the first time um, I read about uh, Ramana Maharshi, I must have been in my early 20s when I was a student still. Um, I think the first book I read about him, by him, in fact, because it was a collection of of, uh, answers given to devotees and also short treatises, um, I read it in French, actually, in French translation, must have been in 1979 or 1980, under the title Un And I remember there was a very striking picture of the Maharshi, the young Maharshi, must have been at the time probably in his 30s, I think, when the picture was taken. And this, this picture was radiating so powerfully um, that in itself it was, it was a message. Um, irrespective, of course, of the content of the book itself, which was eye-opening in, in, in many ways. But but I remember being struck primarily, in fact, by the picture of the Maharshi and this kind of radiation of the self um, was was almost palpable, if I can put it that way, uh, for visual support. Fascinating. Well, indeed, uh, spiritual presence is palpable to those uh, Arguably, perhaps it's noticeable to anyone, despite what they attributed to, but certainly it is palpable to those who are sensitive to these things. Um, and this sort of, uh, it's that very presence to which we owe um, his career and his his notoriety insofar as, was it the case that he did much publicizing, was it? Well, as you know, he didn't do any publicizing at all, actually, from the records I, I, I read, it was quite the contrary. Uh, first of all, he was, of course, perfectly satisfied in the cells and perfectly satisfied in, perfectly contented in, um, in self-realization. And secondly, at a later stage, I think he even shunned, in fact, any publicity, and he was not particularly eager, to say the least, to attract Devotees. Of course, he was receiving with generosity and with and with um, with with, uh, with love uh, those who came to him. But I remember having read in several instances that he was not, for example, particularly disappointed that somebody had started. At the, it was at the time of the ashram. Somebody had started. Uh, I think a disgruntled disciple had started a kind of campaign of defamation against him, and it, and one of his disciples was complaining about it. And the marshal's response was, "Well, you know." Maybe that will discourage those who are not as sincere seekers or something 
that's not what you said, velveting, but that was the, the idea basically. But he didn't worry about having a quantity of disciples, but he was interested, quote-unquote, in, in helping out those who were receptive and sincere enough to come to him. So um, he was definitely not somebody who, uh, he was not a writer either. He was not publicizing his works and writing. Um, and he was not even a theorist at all. He was not somebody who had any prior training in, in terms of doctrine, in terms of Advaita doctrine, for example. He discovered uh, Advaita as an intellectual tradition uh, after the fact, if I can put it that way, after his self-realization. Uh, but he was also sometimes very deeply inspired. Uh, there is, of course, the famous um, event of his um, inspiration in Sanskrit when he was able to to recite in Sanskrit a poetry, a poem, but came to him literally as an inspiration without knowing Sanskrit himself, of course. So he was, I think, the typical um, sage, you know, the, the sage who, who lives for the truth and for presence and for realization and who, who shares his, his presence and this truth with others to the extent that others are receptive to it mm. and willing to to listen um, to what he has to say. And above all, in his case, of course, we are receptive to his transforming silence because, as you know, it was less a matter of speaking or writing, even less than a matter of um, a, a pregnant, powerful, interiorizing silence. Well, there are certain things that can only be communicated in silence, perhaps. Um, but this is this is something. Uh, yes, I, I actually didn't know the answer, but I, um, um, I, I failed to mention at the outset before we started recording that I ask purposefully naive questions, <laughs> typically. Um, but yes, it's it's it is it is um, just for the sake of uh, for the sake of prompting broader takeaways. Um, but it, but but this this idea is a this this reality this aspect of his mission or life, if you will, cannot be. Um, underestimated the fact that he is known uh, throughout India and beyond, and he exerted zero effort with respect to um, launching a public mission, uh, publicity. If, you know, uh, certainly, there are teachers who, um, uh, many a teacher. This is how we know of them. It's by virtue of their publicity. One quite uh, notable and famous such, perhaps sage in our age, uh, depending on your beliefs, who um, is a YouTube sensation, for example, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the fact that the only reason we know of him is because others took note of his presence. This is a fascinating phenomenon. Um, why did you talk about this in the, ch in the introductory chapter? But but why write about Raman Marishi? Why another book about him? What is it that you endeavor to do in this book? Yes, before before I get to this answer, very briefly, um, a comment on what you just said, which is very important, the fact that he didn't try to attract anybody to him and so forth. But I think his, his, um, his wisdom was primarily a matter of presence, as you said, a kind of action of presence, so to speak. And it is, of course, one modality among many other modalities. In other words, not all sages, whether we're speaking even about Hindu sages or others, uh, don't necessarily teach in silence, for example, or they may teach in silence and they may also make use of the 
spoken word or even the written word, they may even make use of arts, artistic expressions. Um, so there are many, many ways. There are many, many uh, uh, upaya, so to speak, uh, skillful means. Uh, but in answer now to your to your to your question about why, um, well, you know, the I think the originality, quote unquote, or the difference rather of this book is that it tries. It's an attempt at situating the Maharshi within a broadly religious framework, because they often, in the West at least, not so much in India, but in the West. Very often, the marsh is completely disconnected from any "quote unquote" religious concerns, and presented as a sage, certainly a self-seeker, uh, but somebody who is certainly distanced from any uh, traditional uh, rooting, so to speak, in a particular religious tradition, um, and that has to do probably with the fact, first of all, that the Maharshi himself. As everybody knows, as, as everybody who knows about Manashi knows, um, was uh, focusing primarily on the question, who am I? And independently from any religious or traditional or even spiritual framework. And secondly, because when his message, I think, came to the West, and there were Westerners who came to him already very early, um, there was probably a sense for many of them that religion or religions um, had been unable to to feed um, to feed them or to respond to their anger uh, for spiritual uh, nourishment uh, and that religions had been reduced to matters of theology ma ma matters of uh, morality ma matters of rituals um, and that they had lost sight so to speak of this uh, fundamental search for the self, this fundamental search for the divine within. Um, and therefore, there was a certain uh, lassitude or in some cases even rejection of uh, traditional religions, primarily Christianity here since we are speaking about Westerners, but not only Christianity, Judaism also. So um, that's why I felt it important to try to situate the teachings and the spiritual personality of the Maharshi in relations to religious phenomena. Uh, in first of all, of course, in relation to the Hindu tradition, to, to what we call the Hindu tradition, to this complex set of phenomena that we refer to as the Hindu tradition on the one hand, and more generally to, to religions. That's why in the book you will find occasionally some parallels and some contrast also uh, with some Christian mystics, or with some Buddhist sages, um, with Sufis, uh, and, and, and so forth. Um, because I can, I, I can see how people who identify with a particular religious traditions might be at the same time fascinated by the figure of the Maharshi, but perhaps uh, might find it difficult to situate his self-realization and his radiance uh, within the context of their own faith. And so then, would you see his uh, his work, his being, his essence, his path, would you see him as inextricable from the Hindu religious tradition broadly? The difficult question. I, I, I think it, it is not inextricable. I think in some sense, it definitely transcends any religious tradition. 
while at the same while at the same time arguably being the core of them. That's the paradox. Um, I'm just, on the other hand, of course, in terms of his human substance, not so much in terms, of course, of his status, quote unquote, as a Jivan Mukta, because by definition, the Jivan Mukta is beyond beyond the beyond the external identities of any kind of sort, including religious ones. But in terms of his human substance, in terms of his history, in terms of his genealogy, in terms of his ambience, well, he belonged to the Hindu tradition, undoubtedly. See? So there is a side of him that is totally universal, and in that sense, supra-Hindu, if you wish. And there is another side of him, which is definitely Hindu. Um, and that's why I think he can attract on both sides. And of course, when I, when I speak of sides, I, I don't speak of black and white. Of course, uh, there's a whole um, gray area in between the two, uh, between this kind of universal and this kind of more, I don't want to say confessional, because it's not right, a more traditional um, aspect of his personality and his, um, and his teaching. Um, now, remember, there is an episode actually at the time, right after the death of his mother, there's an episode that is narrated, I think, by, I don't remember who narrated it, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, um, the the Maharshi was surrounded by clo uh, close devotees of, of him, and uh, his mother had died, so the body was there, and it was considered impure um, for Orthodox Hindu to, to 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 be present in the, in the context, um, and so they they left. The Maharshi stayed, but some of his devot devotees stayed with him, um, shunning, so to speak, the the traditional Hindu uh, proper ways of behaving. Because for them, what was most important was the presence of the Maharshi himself. So, in a sense, this particular event, or rather, this particular situation. Um, discriminated, quote-unquote, between those who saw things more from a traditional Hindu point of view and those who saw them more from a purely um, universal, uh, metaphysical, or from the point of view of the, of the self only, so to speak, irrespective of a particular tradition or routine. Um, so that's, that's one of the fascinating and important aspect of the Maharshi. I think that he is able to speak to, to both sides. Uh, and of course, if you have been to the to the to the Ashram in Tiruvannamalai, you know that there are many Hindus, of course, but there are also many non-Hindus uh, who come um, and benefit uh, uh, of his presence, his relatives. I think we have a problem right with the sound. Yes, you mentioned in passing his early followers, his early adopters from the West, uh, who were perhaps um, disillusioned with or dissatisfied with quote-unquote religion and uh, perhaps were seeking some sort of uh, uh, the spiritual satisfaction uh, from, from his presence. Now, what would you say about the idea that the a bifurcation or separation or disambiguation between religion, uh, between being religious and being spiritual, would you say that's more pronounced in a Western Abrahamic context? Oh, probably. And it has to do with the fact that in the in the Western world, broadly defined, uh, 
uh, religion in general is less pervasive presence in society and in culture than it is, let's say, in South India. Uh, so therefore, this disjunction is, is, is bound to happen because there is in the human heart a, a search first for spirituality, irrespective of the particular context. But at the same time, uh, if for one reason or another, um, the religious traditions are deemed to be unable to satisfy or to quench this first, uh, then of course there is going to be some sort of disconnection between what is considered to be religious on the one hand and what is considered to be spiritual on the other hand. Whereas in South India, I think this disconnection would not is unlikely to operate because there's a, there's a, there's a continuum between the two. I mean it's it's between religion and spirituality and it's quasi impossible to think of one without thinking of the other what is ram ram Maharishi's message for our times well it's very simple the the message for all time is the message for all times it is the message of the present reality or reality as presence and therefore as present now now and ever so in a sense when I when I when I wrote this subtitle um, Ramana, Ramana Marshi's message for the present, um, I was in a way <laughs> luring potential readers into reading the book um, through the word present. But by present, I meant more than um, the, the eternal present, the contemporary times. But I meant the present in the full sense, in the full metaphysical and mystical sense of the present. <laughs> so in a way, this message is not for the present, or it is for the present that is always present, that is ever present. Now, from another point of view, however, I also meant that because of its simplicity, because of its directness, because of its seeming independence from religious traditions, there is indeed in the quote-unquote message of the Maharshi something that may particularly touch contemporary men and women in secularized context. So in that sense, yes, there's a message for the present. The message for this particular present, which is us, the contemporary world, world is that the substance or the essence or the deepest dimension of religious and spiritual life has to do with the search and the discovery or the realization of the divine within, to put it very simply. Mm. Yeah, I love the pun of uh, his message for the present in terms of uh, the present as in you know, whatever year we're in versus the present, capital P present. Um, and I think uh, it is, uh, what, what you say resonates insofar as um, uh, sages and seekers of capital R reality, capital T truth, however we conceive of that and define that, certainly they are seeking something that is much slower burning, if burning at all, than the than, than the than trends on social media or trends in the real world or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me that we have the, um, that we are born in a time now where uh, it'll take us some centuries, to, I think, for the dust to settle, but never before uh, this is the first time in the history of our species that uh, people have been confronted with the beliefs of everyone <laughs> everyone everyone everywhere um 
not just um, I mean, in many ways in terms of access to ideas and realities uh, uh, through social media. I mean, this this thing called the internet is relatively new. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and or, or for example, I, I live and work in in uh, I tease my students, uh, my online students, in the holy city of Toronto. So why is it the holy city? I say it's the multicultural mecca. It's the world's most diverse city statistically. And so um, I think part of one of the major growing pains we're experiencing as a species is what do we do with uh, religious beliefs and practices and spiritual pursuits and uh, how do we make sense of it all and you know, does the baby go out with the bathwater? Do we have to choose? Can we be Christian and do yoga? Can we um, can we uh, can we be Jewish and uh, and um, uh, honor the holy presence of the Maharishi, etc., etc., etc.? And I think in this age where there's a massive sw- amounts of people who identify as spiritual but not religious, and really what people mean, and it took me a while to realize this, to unlearn what I learned as, as a scholar of religion. When people say religion in the West, they mean Christianity. Ninety percent of the time, that's what's in their head when they say religion. Uh, and it took me a while to learn that religion for most people means Christianity, right? Um, and so when they say spiritual, not religious, they're happy to try other people's religion, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, you know, y- yoga culture. And I think, I think people are very much either doubling down to demonstrate and experience their religious creed as the one true path, or they are dispensing with it all and taking science as a religion, or they are looking for ways to be nourished somehow. And it seems to me that messages like um, uh, Ramana Maharishi's uh, may may well service those people. Um, Maharishi. What is the title Maharishi? How did he get it? Well, Maharshi, um, as you know, is the, is the great Rishi, is the great um, the great seer, and um, that's the name that was given to him by Ganapati Muni, um, and of course that's a name that is that is in a way very very universal and very generic because it refers, in principle, it could be used to refer to any great sage any great spiritual seer. Uh, so it's more a title, obviously, uh, than a name. His name, obviously, is Ramana. And uh, as I'm sure most of our auditors are aware as well, um, he was addressed by his devotees as Bhagavan, that is, as Lord, or as Divine Lord, um, as a divine being, as an embodiment of the divine. Uh, and, and to... To go back uh, briefly now to the to your previous point about the the contemporary situation, I think that um, what is particularly precious about the Maharshi's presence and message and teaching is its simplicity, as I said earlier, and its directness, and all the more so in a world that is extremely complex culturally, um, religiously, um, philosophically. Um, there is a need for simplicity in a certain sense because there is something, in fact, uh, vertiginous about the complexity of our world on many levels, including the religious and the spiritual uh, level. So therefore, it's particularly helpful to have somebody who comes to you and tell you, well, you know, it's about the self. It's about who am I? 
It's about the essence of reality beyond the diversity of religious and spiritual ways. I remember uh, in one of the responses he gave to a seeker that Ramana Maharshi made the point that religions and spiritual paths are so complicated. They are like detours, sometimes huge detours to get to the point, in his perspective at least. In his perspective, they are just detours to get to the point. But the reason why they are detours, of course, is because we are all in different places. We start from different places, we have different backgrounds, we have different degrees of intensity in terms of our aspiration, spiritual aspiration, we have different contexts, obviously. So, of course, uh, the straight line is not for everybody. It's presumably, according to the Marsh himself, it's only for a few. The straight line here would be the question, who am I? Uh, for the immense majority of others, for the immense majority of us, uh, we need detours, so to speak. We need ways, we need paths, we need religions, um, which uh, help us realize that which is ultimately nothing else than our true nature. Can one say that this quest, this who am I, this, this um, inquiry into the self, this idea that there is an aspect of self that is somehow supreme, cosmic, universal, can one not say that this itself is a Hindu idea? That this itself, this pursuit or presumption doesn't exist, for example, in the Christian paradigm? Well, there are people, as you are aware, I'm sure, who, who kind of um, say that, or if they don't say it, they they imply it. Um, the idea, for example, that um, in the Indian world or in the Hindu world, rather, um, it's not about faith, but it's about um, searching, searching for the for the self, um, and there is undoubtedly some truth in that. But the world of faith is primarily the world, not exclusively, but primarily the world of Abrahamic religions. There, in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam, the the key word or one of the key words is is faith. Uh, faith, of course, is present in the Hindu world, but in a, in a different way, in a way that is much less central, arguably. Of course, this faith, this need for faith, even, let's say, in Advaita Vedanta, which is, of course, a metaphysical path, uh, there is need for faith, there is need for faith in the scriptures, in the guru, in the teachings, and so forth, but it's not um, comparable, neither functionally nor in terms of exact definition, it's not comparable to what faith is, let's say, in Christianity. Um, so... Yes, in that sense, I would say that there is a difference. There is a difference there. But at the same time, if you look at mysticism, what we call very broadly mysticism in the world of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam as well, you find uh, formulations, you find metaphysical and mystical formulations that come very close indeed, to say in fact the least, uh, to uh, Advaita. Uh, I, I, I like to, to mention to my students because I happen to, to teach in a, in a, Muslim, uh, in a Muslim country. Uh, of course, most of my Muslim students are not aware of that of the Sufi tradition, but, but I'd like to, to mention a, a verse uh, from a, a Sufi, a medieval Sufi called Shushtari, um, in which he, he states, who am I? 
O-I, if not I. It's a literal translation of the Arabic. Who am I? O-I, if not I. I mean, this is pure Ramana Maharshi, no? Um, and, and it's situated within the context of Sufism, therefore within the context of Muslims. Of course, most Muslims, the immense majority of Muslims, presumably would not recognize themselves, so to speak, in this statement. But the fact is that it exists, and it's not an isolated case. I mean, it's it's very, very direct in this case, but there is, of course, the case of Halaj, Al-Mansur al-Halaj, the great mystic, medieval mystic of Baghdad, uh, the famous uh, NL Haq, I am the truth. That's also a statement um, about the, the supreme identity of the supreme, the supreme self, or at least that's the way in which it has been understood by many in the Sufi tradition. Is there anything that surprised you about this process, about uh, what you learned about Ramadan Rishi? Anything particularly remarkable or surprising that you uncovered in your in your writing about him? Well, uh, surprising, yes. There's something surprising, if I think in terms of the way I approached the Maharshi when I was much younger, the way I discovered it, and the image I had of the, of the sage at the time, or even until 20 years ago, let's say, uh, I had this image of the Maharshi, which indeed corresponds to reality to some extent, as a kind of divine being, this kind of sage, Disconnected, seemingly disconnected from human concerns, uh, and on a kind of spiritual throne, so to speak, um, transcending uh, human human matters and human feelings, even I could say. And this is not an exact picture at all of the Maharshi. And one of the things I discovered while doing extensive research on him is. Uh, is that there is a whole dimension of this person, of his spiritual personality, that is very much uh, consonant with uh, bhakti, with devotion. That as a human being, he was able to experience bhaktic emotions, that is, emotions connected to uh, a devotion to the divine, starting with the very embodiment of the divine, which was for him Arunachala Chiva. Arunachala Shiva, the mountain, as embodiment of Shiva, of Lord Shiva himself. Um, and of course, there is the famous hymn uh, about um, uh, the nuptial garland uh, uh, devoted to Arunachala, in which uh, the Maharshi writes about the union of the soul with Arunachala Shiva in terms that are reminiscent of the love mystical poetry at times of Christian mystics or Sufi mystics. Um, I've read also, I included in my book uh, several instances where some devotees of the Maharshi, Hindu devotees of the Maharshi, uh, narrated how he would or he could, in some particular instances, uh, shed tears out of an experience of bhaktic emotion. Um, so this this dimension of the Maharshi uh, is one of which I was not keenly aware um, and that I, I discovered as I did extensive research about him. And I think it's a very important dimension because to go back to what I was saying in the beginning, 
it shows the convergence between self-realization on the one hand, that has to do with the emergence, so to speak, of the divine within the soul, and on the other hand, uh, the the, the aspiration of the soul itself toward the divine, which is nothing else than the bhakti aspiration. So in other words, there is something, for the Maharshi, it's very clear that there's something in, in us that is the essence of what we are, and this reality, if I can put it that way, aspires to realize itself, so to speak, within ourselves, and that's the, the dimension of jnana, basically the dimension of path of knowledge, but there is another, another dimension, which is the devotional dimension, and that has to do with a human being himself or herself in their relationship to the divine. And the two are, are, are complementary. They are not in opposition, the contrary, they are complementary, but they are all at the same time situated on two very different levels, because the first one is divine. The first one is divine self-knowledge, whereas the second is the love of the human soul for the divine. So the first one is non-dualistic by definition because it has to do with the self and only with the self, because only the self can know the self. The Maharshi is very clear about it, and all the great sages and Shankaracharya and so forth and others are very clear about it. You cannot know the self. Any, It is impossible. It is actually absurd to think that the individual human being could know the divine self because the self is the very self of all selves. So the self cannot become an object for any body or anything else than itself, obviously. You cannot treat the self as an object. You cannot objectify the self. Anything that can be objectified is not and cannot be the self by definition. So there's that dimension. But there's the other dimension, which is the bhakti. And this is what religions generally deal with primarily, to go back to your earlier point, um, the, the dimension of the, 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 the relational dimension, the dimension that has to do with the relation between a human soul, a human agent, and the divine reality, the transcendent. One perhaps consider it thus, that there's this individual in pursuit of the self or in attainment of the self, there's an aspect of him that is the self of all selves, this self-realized state. But nevertheless, you know, his body and mind complex are still there. He'll have, he'll have preferences. For example, the preference to to to, to remain low key, perhaps certain foods that he likes, etc., etc., etc. And insofar as there's also his human self that is part of this complex, that human self very much is ensconced in. Um, uh, the religious milieu of bhakti, the the the, the prevalent idiom of, of his times and his conditionings. So can we perhaps consider it thus, that we've got the pursuit of the self that pertains to the ultimate spiritual self, but then there are aspects of his conditioning and, 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 and his circumstance, and that's that's where that's whereby bhakti uh, takes hold. Yes, and in, in fact, uh, it is so true that um, the... the the search really is, comes from the self, first of all. The search for the self comes from the self. It couldn't come from anything else or anybody else than the self itself, in a way. Uh, so it's the self uh, 
which is self-seeking as it were. Um, and that, again, it's totally independent in a way, uh, or at least it's totally incommensurable with the individuality as such. Of course, on the other hand, uh, there are uh, attitudes, there are dispositions, uh, there are even, even practices that may facilitate or do facilitate self-realization. If we take the case of the Ramana Maharshi, it's fascinating, in fact, because it's a very unusual example of self-realization, even within the Hindu tradition. Here you have somebody who seemingly, at least, was not in his childhood or in his uh, teenage prior to his self-realization, was not particularly religious. Uh, however, I would caution that I also found some testimonies um, that tend to bear witness to the fact that without being religious as such, he had already a certain um, sense of the sacred, so to speak. There was already in him a disposition toward uh, vibrating toward uh, presences of the divine and the sacred. But he was not particularly religious. Uh, as as um, many people know, what triggered externally, at least, accidentally, what triggered his self-realization was simply a sudden awareness of his own mortality, the certainty, the existential, an acute existential certainty, I'm going to die, together with the fear that was involved with this certainty. So it was a very concrete, even you could say seemingly psychological experience of the fear of death that was seemingly the catalyst for something infinitely deeper, which was the emergence of the self. So basically, uh, those who are familiar with the Maharshi knows the story, taken by this by this fright of, 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 um, of, of, of death, he inquired within what is dying or who is dying? What is it that is dying? And he imitated even the, the physical posture of, the, of a corpse lying on the floor. And so, and that's from this experience, from this inquiry into what is dying or who is dying, that the, the self emerged in a kind of miracle of self consciousness. So there was a kind of a triggering event, but Obviously, uh, on the other hand, there is a complete disproportion between the triggering event and the outcome. The two are incommensurate. Otherwise, it would be sufficient to, to experience the fear of death to, to self-realize. And the experience proves that uh, most people um, don't, don't, uh, don't self-realize because, simply because uh, they are afraid of death or even because they inquire what is dying or is dying. Uh, so that, that's... Um, but, but, but that's another aspect of the directness and the simplicity, in a sense, of the teachings of the Maharshi, because even in his own experience of the self, there's something extremely direct, extremely simple, um, that is unusual. How did you conduct your research? What was that like? Excuse me, how, how should I? How did you conduct your research? What was that like? Oh, well, I've, two ways. Uh, but first of all, I went many times to to the ashram and to Arunachala, so I I, I think I, I sort of imbibed a lot of things there, obviously on a on a spiritual and on a psychological level also. 
And then I read a lot. I read pretty much everything which is available uh, in the open languages, at least in uh, I don't read the I don't read the Hindi or. But actually, I had I had some help with Hindi, and there is very little in Hindi that is not in 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 English or in European languages. In fact, about the Maharshi itself. Uh, so just reading a lot, reading pretty much everything or that is available about him. Um, from an Indian side, from an European side, an American side, and so forth, and that's that's it basically. And and uh, but we but but I had this this general guideline of trying to make sense of the Marshi, particularly in terms of what his message means for people for whom religion is important or is meaningful. So then, is that who the book's for? Who would you say the book is primarily for? Who would benefit from reading the book? I think any, I mean, I hope that anybody who is interested in spirituality would benefit from it in, in very, very broad terms. Uh, it could serve as a kind of introduction to Ramana Maharshi also, because there is a, there is a fairly, fairly extensive chapter on his, on his uh, spiritual uh, biography, so to speak. Um, I, think those, I think those who might benefit most particularly from the book are those who think I believe they are mistaken, but those who think that the teachings of the Marshi are totally disconnected or should be disconnected from any religious concern or any religious life. I think, for me, the, the teaching of the Maharshi, far from being disconnected from the religious broadly defined, is the epitome and the peak and the culmination of religious life. It's why at, at the end of the, of the book, I suggest that even though most Christians or most Muslims or most Jews um, will not readily recognize in the Maharshi's message their own faith, some might have an intimation of what his personality and message may mean for them as believers. After all, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, within you. I know that many people today think that it's not within you, it means among you, but they are actually, the, the Greek says <laughs> within, it's not among. But anyway, irrespective from this from this difference of opinion, within you, if the kingdom of God is within you, that means that the divine is immanent to your very self, to your very reality. Um, and therefore, that's an intimation of the need to uh, look within and to realize the divine within. Excellent. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much, Raj. Uh, it was a pleasure to speak with you, and um, and I'm uh, very grateful for this opportunity to share a few reflections about my book. For those listening, of course, we've been speaking with Patrick Laut on Surrendering to the Self, Ramana Maharishi's message for the present. Um, and until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating who you are. Take care.